Bookish at Bethel. I'm Carrie Pefley from the Philosophy Department. And I'm Anne-Marie Koyster in the History Department. And this week we're going to talk about Frankenstein with our beloved literature professor, Dr. Marian Larson. So I hope you enjoy it. So Marian, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Looking forward to it. Yeah. So could you start by explaining to us just for our, our listeners out there who haven't read Frankenstein, what's what's the basic synopsis of, of Frankenstein? Yeah. So uh, a lot of people have heard the word Frankenstein and immediately conjure up mental images of like 1930s or 40s uh, black and white Hollywood movies with this huge dude with like bolts sticking out of the side of his head and that sort of his neck, or maybe young Frankenstein uh, from the seventies, which is uh, a joke about it. So um, it is true that Frankenstein has horror and creepy elements to them, which is part of what makes it deliciously fun to read. But uh, basically the story is that a man named Victor Frankenstein, who is a scientist who's especially fascinated by um, mysterious uh, sort of edgy science uh, is wondering if it's possible to take parts of a dead human body, sew them together and with electricity, animate that body, um, bring it to life. And turns out it is it is possible. <laughs> and he uh, creates a creature who is not named, is simply called the creature. So the, uh, the main character is the scientist whose name is Frankenstein. The monster, or the, the creature is not named Frankenstein. Um, and uh, things don't go very well with that uh, cr creation of the creature. And so much of the book consists of Victor Frankenstein trying to capture and kill the creature that he has made. Um, and uh, be because the creature ends up doing a lot of bad things, largely killing some people that are very close to Victor. And uh, in the end, Victor dies and the creature um, is uh, promising that he is going to kill himself because he recognizes that uh, it would be best for uh, his life not to continue. But when the story ends, the creature is, is still alive. Um, one of the other characters that uh, I've never seen a movie version where this other character appears is a, uh, a polar explorer named John Walton, who's another uh, science figure in the story. And he uh, is writing letters home to his sister while he and his men are out on a really dangerous um, exploration expedition. And that's how he encounters Victor, who is uh, who tells his story. And then uh, he, uh, John Walton also encounters the, the creature that way. So the, the narrative structure of the book is super interesting. It's like uh, Ukrainian nesting dolls. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, it's like story within a story within a story, uh, which I think is part is fascinating. So Marion, I got to interrupt because I think at one point you said that he uses electricity to animate this flesh, but I don't think in the novel 
he tells what the sciences that he's using to because because there is some sort of hint in even the initial conversations he has with John Walton that John Walton, this explorer, wants to know. Yeah. But Victor Frankenstein does not actually reveal that, I think, because he's alarmed that this information would be available and he doesn't want anyone else to follow in his footsteps. Yeah, no, I think that's a super good point. Uh, one of the things that I think Mary Shelley is able to accomplish by organizing the book around a story within a story is that when John Walton and we, the readers, very, very first encounter Victor Frankenstein, it's actually near the end of his own life. And it's after a whole bunch of really horrible things have happened. And so uh, when uh, John Walton first meets Victor, um, even in the first few pages of the book, and then this gets reiterated a few other times, Victor says repeatedly to John Walton, um, what are you doing, doing all of this exploration? You're putting yourself and your men's lives at risk. Um, what was the matter with me that I allowed my uh, own desire for secret knowledge to, um, to overtake me? What have I done? What have I done? And so uh, Victor in those moments is a, a, a person very full of regret. And I think you're right, Anne-Marie, that that's one of the, well, I think there are two reasons <laughs> why the details of his experiments aren't included. One is because he wants to keep that information under wraps because he doesn't, it would be like Oppenheimer or someone else who invented the atomic bomb um, feeling regret, but then saying, here's the recipe for how you can make your own bomb. Right. Yeah. But, the other, but the other thing is because this has never successfully happened, um, Mary Shelley, I mean, she could have gone into a lot more detail than she did because there really were experiments exactly like this going on in the early 1800s. And she was very knowledgeable about cutting edge romantic era science, as was her husband, the poet Percy Shelley. Um, so she could have said a lot more than she did, but the fact that it has never succeeded, um, I think is another reason why she doesn't include that level of detail. Right. And I think mm -hmm. we presume that it's electricity because those yes. science experiments that she yes. wrote about in yes. the journals you mentioned in your lecture. Yeah. yeah. And I, I mean, I think there's actually two things there. She was super knowledgeable, as was Percy, about this uh, experiments with electricity and this branch of science called vitalism, kind of looking for what is the, what's the spark of life? Um, what is it that, that causes life to exist in the first place? What's like that unifying explanatory principle, I guess, ah, uh, maybe it's electricity. She was also really knowledgeable about and fascinated by chemistry. And uh, in her home growing up, when she was 14 years old, um, probably the most famous romantic era chemist, Humphrey Davy, um, was one of the scientists on the traveling lecture circuit who uh, her father invited into their home um, to give a lecture. <laughs> and Mary was all like, oh, dad, please, I want to hear this guy. She was all excited about it. And mm -hmm. yeah. And she also clearly knows a lot about the history of science. So yeah. fascinated by, I mean, I think some of it is she, she assumes a very educated audience that's going to get the implications that she's sort of putting in. Cause she actually talks about the experiments of like, um, that 
that Victor is studying Albert Albertus Magnus. That's Albert the Great, who's the teacher of Thomas Aquinas and did a lot of, um, of experiments. So it's just sort of like she's dropping all of these things that the discerning reader can pick up on if they want to, but she's not going to mention them straightforwardly. And Carrie, and Carrie, you being the uh, Aquinas, the queen of Aquinas, um, yeah. out of the three of us, you would be a discerning reader who would notice that detail that right. I did, I, I've, I've read this novel probably six or seven times, and I never noticed that detail. Uh-huh. Yes. Whereas I was like, oh, oh my goodness, that's, uh -huh. that's medieval alchemy. And again, right, the medieval chemists were doing alchemy. They were doing a little bit of magic. It's all kind of weird experimental science that's also kind of supernatural, which fits perfectly well, into a monster. Well, it also absolutely fits the Romantic era because here you have a time in which people are um, partly reacting against the Enlightenment with this idea that um, it's all about reason, that humans, you know, ultimately I, I think, therefore I am. Um, and and so on the one hand, you have uh, romantic era figures like Mary and Percy Shelley and uh, their compatriots who are appalled by the materialist ways of scientific thinking. Um, those who want to see the, you know, the industrial complex um, continue to produce uh, factory and other technologies that can make more and more stuff and they saw the early examples of environmental degradation and that really bothered them. Also this idea that you could just sort of distill uh, everything into, oh, it's all about just physical. Right. So that's the part of science they didn't like, but the part of science they loved was <laughs> this sort of mysterious alchemy, ooh, maybe electricity is an answer because they loved the idea, they, they deeply believe that there is more to life than just what we see on the outside. There's more to existence than what we can explain rationally. So they were fascinated by uh, and often wrote and told mysterious stories about things coming back to life or about ghosts or about things that were weird and couldn't be explained um, clearly, which is, uh, I mean, this particular novel sort of fits into that aspect of romantic thinking also. Right. Well, and I liked that you uh, mentioned in the lecture that students got to watch uh, a connection to the ideas of Thomas Paine and the deist. Like, in some ways, they take this sort of um, enlightenment appreciation of nature and what nature can teach us and then marry it to a kind of sublime kind mm -hmm. of um, sensibility. And so there are all those passages in Frankenstein where when people are feeling bothered, they just, they go to nature and then they speak of nature almost <laughs> like a lover, you know, like, yeah. oh, you know, the mountains, the, and it, it, it's, it's great because we see this even in Jonathan Edwards. This is where he experiences God is in nature. So, I mean, I get it, but it's, it is kind of an interesting connection that you were able to make. Um, yeah. And in fact, the creature also um, has kind of hardwired into his own sensibility an ability to love and appreciate beauty. The, the creature frequently talks about 
uh, uses the word beauty, talks about times when he noticed beautiful, um, you know, it, you notice the beauty of nature. And part of what so deeply distresses the creature about himself is he comes to realize, oh my gosh, I am horrifically disfigured and ugly. Um, and if you deeply care about beauty and then you see yourself as grotesque, um, that could be problematic in his own sense of self. So Carrie, I have a question for you, which is um, Marion talks about the book from the perspective of an English professor. You're a philosopher. What do you think the book's about? Oh, yes. I mean, I, I definitely, and again, I, I know the story. I've actually seen the Guthrie's play, but I will be reading, I will be reading the, the book for the first time with a student. So I'm about 25 pages in right now. Um, okay. And so, I mean, one of the things that I think, you know, monster stories, and I've learned this from listening to lectures by Marion and Mark about monster stories um, are about, so frequently are about fear of, of the other, of, of, you know, contemporary societal concerns. Um, and so certainly philosophically, um, I think some of those concerns are going to be about, right, what are the ethical, so I'm going to think about the ethics of, of mm -hmm. Frankenstein. What are the ethics of scientific research? Mm -hmm. What are the, uh, not just in terms of the research itself, but the um, the side effects. So um, what's, what's it going to do to the environment? Um, and I think a lot of, you know, our romantics that we're reading right now, we're also concerned with those same things, right? is progress really progress if it's also having all of these catastrophic side effects? Um, so thinking about those. Well, I'm excited for you to meet the creature and Marion can probably talk more about this too, but I was finding in my rereading of it this time that I was noticing that the creature that Victor Frankenstein makes, although horribly physically deformed and unattractive, is in all other ways in all other ways, almost a superman. Oh, absolutely. He, and that's fascinating. Yeah, um, I, I think one of the best, <clears throat> if we were gonna give students the best possible reading experience of this novel, we would also read John Milton's retelling of the fall of humanity, mm. Paradise mm. Lost, mm -hmm. because it's super clear that Mary Shelley uh, knew that long poem very, very well. And there's a reference she quotes, to it. Oh, yes. she quotes from it multiple times. Um, and I mean, there are a bunch of things interesting about the way she tells the book, but or tells the story. But one thing is, as you mentioned, Anne-Marie, <clears throat> she makes the creature, and I, I just think it's really important to keep calling the creature the creature and not the monster. Right. Because yes, there are things deeply monstrous about the creature. The creature ends up doing some really horrible things um, and, and I would argue becomes monstrous over the course of the novel. Uh, but if we think of, of a monster as something we're supposed to reject or see as horrible or see as an outsider, then I think it could be argued as deeply that Victor and maybe John Walton are also monstrous, monstrous. figures. Mm -hmm. um, but the creature is very, very much in, in his sensibility and his articulateness, he is very much like the character Satan 
that John Milton creates mm -hmm. in Paradise Lost. And John Milton, in trying to show even more deeply how horrible the fall was, mm -hmm. uh, tries to show um, what a beautiful and articulate and sensitive and mm -hmm. smart creature Satan was before the fall. Mm -hmm. And similarly, uh, how amazing Adam, I was going to say and Eve, but he doesn't really talk very much about <laughs> Eve. Um, but especially how amazing Adam was before the fall. So that, uh, and, and so we see <clears throat> Mary Shelley, um, we're supposed to see the creature as like uh, Satan, but then Victor also has several clear allusions to Paradise Lost. Um, he talks about uh, like having a fiend within himself um, and kind of we see Victor also fall. And so one of the things I would say to students is as you're reading the book, <clears throat> look for ways in which different characters seem similar to each other. Mary Shelley is wanting us to consider links between characters. So the creature and Victor, how are they like each other? Um, Victor and John Walton, how are they like each other? And so then I think, well, if the creature and Victor are like each other, and if John Walton and Victor are like each other, then are we also supposed to ask, how might John Walton be like the creature? What's the potential for John Walton to become monstrous? And does that have something to do with the message of the book? <clears throat> I would argue that it does, by the way, but well, and there is there's this great several. So there's a point. I mean, you mentioned already, Marion, that the way that the book is set up in terms of its structure is remarkable. And actually, that's part of the reason why I like the fact that we'll read Dracula next, because mm -hmm. it's the same kind of, um, you know, stitching together of accounts. Right. Uh, I love that. But there's a point in which Victor is telling his story. But then in, in, as he's telling his story, he talks then about what the monster, the, not the monster, sorry, the creature story is. The creature then has a chance to speak for himself. Mm. And the creature talks about kind of how he became educated. He talks about moving from not knowing anything to learning how to use fire. Uh, then he he finds this hovel that he's able to stay in where he's close to a family. And uh, you know, it just so happens that one of the people that joins them, uh, the family, is a woman who doesn't speak English. So the creature talks about learning, or not English, French, I guess it is in the, in the novel. But the, the creature talks about how to speak the language and how he is learning faster than the woman that they that they bring into the family and i just thought oh my goodness and then he talks about acquiring books and the yeah. idea so his his the the rapidity of his education and the ability to think and even victor frankenstein as he's talking to john walton says hey if you meet up with this guy be warned because he's very well spoken he's very persuasive and right? that's one of the reasons why uh, Victor becomes convinced that he cannot grant the creature's request. So, so the creature says, look, I'm miserable because I'm alone. Uh, I know that there's no other creature like me. And he implores Victor, please make me a companion suitable for me. And if you do that, 
I swear that the two of us will go off into the hinterlands and you'll never see or hear from us again. And at first, Victor thinks, yep, I get it. I see how corrosive solitude can be, especially when you don't want it. Um, so, and I am kind of responsible for this guy because I made him. So he, uh, Victor gets very close to creating uh, a companion for the creature and then realizes, yeah, but this creature is physically superhuman in its strength and is really smart and very articulate. What if uh, his companion is equally amazing and what if they are able to procreate, mm -hmm. um, oh my gosh. And so he decides not to do that and he destroys uh, the companion that he has almost finished making. He destroys his lab. It's kind of like, I'm gonna get rid of all the evidence <laughs> um, because I don't want anyone to come after me and try to do this. Mm -hmm. This is interesting because, well, it's interesting for a lot of reasons, but I'm just thinking about sort of personal identity um, what it is to be a self. Um, and one enlightenment idea is that what the self is, is an autonomous individual, right? Who is self-sufficient, self-reliant, as Emerson um, would say. And then what we see, though, with what some of the feminists are doing at this point is starting to challenge that notion and say, actually, the self is relational, Mm -hmm. um, and part of what makes us who we are and our very identities are bound into mm -hmm. others. And so the fact that this poor creature has an identity that is completely disconnected from others and he's disallowed from interacting with others um, raises the question of what is it to be human and can the, can the creature be human if he's not allowed to interact with others? Yeah, and I mean, part of what I think is interesting along those lines is I, I think this book in a very fascinating way shows both the appeal of some romantic era thinking, and you can tell that Mary Shelley is shaped by it and sympathetic to those kinds of thoughts, but also she's able to show some of the contradictions at the core of romantic thinking. And so you're, you're uh, comment Carrie about uh, like the nature of the self. So on the one hand, if you read some of the British romantic poets, um, Wordsworth would be a good example. They over and over again talk about how important it is for them to feel connected with other people who are important to them. So Wordsworth talks about his relationship with his younger sister, Dorothy, and also with his frenemy, uh, the, the poet Samuel Taylor Coleridge, they were really close for a while and they had a falling out. But um, so companionship is highly valued by these romantic writers. But at the same time, the heroic figure who uh, gets written about and talked about um, is, uh, is basically the solitary uh, explorer, the John Walton type figure. And so um, I, I, I think if you, uh, one of the things that students could pay attention to in the book is, well, what is it that causes the creature to go from um, a creature who seems to have potential to be a uh, maybe kind of awesome, sensitive to beauty, mm -hmm. a fast learner, all of that. What is it that corrodes his soul? 
Um, it starts with his being rejected by his very own maker, um, you could say by his parent at the moment that he comes into consciousness and then being rejected over and over again by the different humans he comes into contact with. And then you could also ask, look at points in the book where Victor seems to be doing more okay and less okay. He's doing more okay when he's maintaining his relationship with his betrothed Elizabeth, even though it's long distance and via letters. Also the times when his friend Henry Clerval and he are in physical proximity to each other. So that's when he gets renewed, he's thinking more clearly, um, he's not uh, engaging in dangerous uh, behavior like the crazy scientific experiments that produce the creature. Um, and then, the then when he produces the creature, he basically is totally alone, um, alone with his own thoughts. And, uh, and even John Walton, um, one thing I find interesting about John Walton is that yes, he sort of fits this isolated, I'm gonna risk myself and my men romantic era ex scientific explorer hero, but we know his story because he keeps writing letters to his sister. And at the very end of the novel, not to spoil it for you or anything, Carrie, but at the very end of the novel, uh, Walton says to his sister, well, um, my men have mutinied. I, and I realize I'm endangering all of us. Uh, I'm gonna give up on my quest and we're gonna go back home again. So he, he feels like he's failed, but I, I, mm -hmm. we're supposed to see him as making the right decision. Um, and, and, and so I, I just think this whole idea of the, uh, the corrosive nature of enforced solitude and the importance of relationship is one of the huge messages in this book. Yeah, and thanks to you both for mentioning that. And I think too, just for the the, re, the the folks who are listening, I mean, in that conversation that the creature has with Victor Frankenstein, where he's trying to explain uh, what went wrong, he says that he has become evil because he does not have the companion, and it's and that's a very interesting idea, I think, in the book. And I think it's also one of those things that. I remember one of my earliest conversations with my then friend, Tim Carlson, was the, the mystery actually even of the Genesis story, right? Where even in Genesis 1 and 2, God sees everything is good, but then he says, it is not good for a man to be alone. Mm -hmm. And that is in paradise in perfection. And yet, even the Genesis account sort of indicates there's a, a little bit of a flaw, which is, that's a very interesting sort of idea to think about, I think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and something that uh, related to that might be interesting to talk about with our students is the connection to Aristotle's Nicomachean ethics, that Aristotle in designing his ideal good life says, without friends, no one would choose to live, though he have all other good things. So he may be mm. wealthy, he may be well situated. If he doesn't have friends, life isn't worth living. That mm. companionship is essential. Mm. This is why we invite you to these conversations, Carrie. That's right. <laughs> Dang. You can always know, just bring up Aristotle. Yeah. Well, and I'm just thinking how ironic that we're having these uh, conversations about the uh, need for human connection in a time of <laughs> pandemic. 
No, that's a super good point. That's a really good point. Um, it, well, kind of along these lines, uh, well, this isn't really about companionship, but it is about the impact that our environment has on us, our social environment. Um, we've, we talked about this a little bit back when we were reading Burke and Payne, um, and that is the idea that many of those who supported the French Revolution um, were those uh, who said, you know what, uh, Payne would be a really good example of this, who said, yeah, I know people, humans do bad things sometimes, but they don't do bad things because at the core they are fallen. Um, it's not because of original sin. Actually, we're born uh, morally neutral or even innocent. It is messed, it's lack of appropriate nurture and it's messed up social structures that cause people to become deformed and to do bad things. So on the one hand, I think we can see that message in Frankenstein, but I also think uh, that Mary Shelley wants us to say, yeah, but wait a second, even if you don't have the right companion, even if you don't have the right kind of nurture, um, don't you still have some agency? Um, I mean, she's writing this, after the French Revolution and after the Reign of Terror. And so I, I think she is still shaped by this idea and certainly her own parents who were um, political radicals who supported the French Revolution and other kinds of social change. She did believe in and care about social change, did believe that societal structures and nurturing are important, but are we supposed to be nothing but sympathetic toward the creature? Um, I, I don't know. I, I have trouble believing that, that I'm supposed to feel pure, unadulterated sympathy for him. Um, I feel horrible that he's, that this, uh, that this uh, emotionally beautiful at the beginning creature is so horribly rejected and mistreated by others. Um, but I just wonder if he takes responsibility to the degree that he should. Well, let's see, that's a great question, Marianne, because yeah. I would say that my sympathy is 100% with the creature. Hmm. And it's hard for, I think, I, I, I sort of probably am taking it from the perspective of a parent that Victor Frankenstein did screwed up he no, totally did something and did not take responsibility for it mm -hmm. and here he has the best of intentions like he create he tries to put together something he thinks will be um aesthetically beautiful but he fails so miserable like that's a, also a curious part of the story like why is this creature so horribly unattractive when it's clear very clear in the novel that victor frankenstein put together the most aesthetically beautiful things that he could so i also think there's an interesting and i'm to, to carrie's point maybe a feminist critique of who ought to be in charge of creating life mm -hmm. is the right kind of connection really supposed to it's maybe supposed to be organic and maybe that's also a little bit conservative too but that is it's interesting yeah 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 and mm -hmm. i i mean people have often this this is my the comment i'm about to make doesn't necessarily go in an exclusively feminist direction but uh the whole question of well uh 
ought, ought this to be organic or, or created. Um, some people have taken this novel in the direction of this is a warning against science. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think it's a warning against science, but I do think it's a warning against um, science without responsibility, making without responsibility. And so I think that could certainly connect with a feminist reading or uh, if you're talking about creating life without then taking responsibility for it. Um, but just th this idea that, yeah, uh, curiosity, a desire to make, um, those are good things. Uh, but they're not uh, unadulteratedly good. <laughs> they, they can be taken in bad directions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think too, I don't usually use the word hubris because that's a too fancy of a word. But to me, the novel, if there is a novel that speaks to the problem of hubris, I think it's this novel. And I think too, it ties in with some of these ideas that you've already mentioned, that it's about the great man exploring for the sake of greatness. Now also curiosity and also wanting to deeply understand something. I don't think the problem is with trying to deeply understand something. It is that part where it's it's not just about deeply understanding. It's because you also want to be this heroic figure yourself. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's lots of mentions of seeking glory, right? I'm interested in the glory that will come to me from this discovery. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, well, and you know, we, we talked earlier about uh, the fact that Mary Shelley seems to assume a fairly, a, a fairly well-informed literate audience um, who would have known things like the experiments with electricity in her day. I, and I, I want to go back to the John Walton character. Um, I, I'm a little obsessed with this because over the last year or two, I've read like three books about polar exploration in the early 1800s. <laughs> of course I have, I know. Um, but this, uh, I, I just think about those, like the Shackelford expedition. I mean, some of those expeditions where, um, I guess it's kind of like the early space program where, where I, I just find myself thinking, yeah, but, but why? You're, I mean, I, I understand that pushing the boundaries of human knowledge, uh, it's not only inherently interesting, but it also could potentially benefit people. But if you know that you're putting your own life at risk and risking the lives of everybody else uh, involved in this operation, I don't know. I, I just, I certainly don't have it in me and I wouldn't, be I don't think I'd be particularly supportive um, if a close friend or family member said, <laughs> I'm gonna, you know, go on this polar ex expedition or whatever. So I, um, but there, there was people were reading all the time newspaper accounts of these expeditions and then the people who did survive and make it back telling their story um, that's something else that uh, Mary Shelley and others absolutely would have in real life have known about people like John Walton. Mm -hmm. Well, and I just want to make sure I get this in here too. Um, you uh, ended your lecture on Frankenstein by pointing out that uh, you had a quotation from Charlotte Gordon, who is a biographer of Mary Shelley and her mother. And you uh, had this quote about how Mary, uh, had deep reservations 
about the ability of human beings to improve themselves or the world. Evil, she felt, was lodged too deeply inside the human heart. Great quote. Mm-hmm. I got that quote from you, Anne-Marie. Because oh, did you? Yeah, I did. <laughs> So I, I knew you would like that one. Oh, I, I'd forgotten. I <laughs> oh, awkward. Anyway. Great minds think alert. Think yeah. alert. Oh, shoot. Uh, um, I want to make sure that we have a little time. Uh, I really could talk about this all day. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I want to have a little time just to hear, Marion, um, what you're doing to survive COVID-19 and isolation and also what might be on your nightstand. Yeah. So, uh one thing I've been I've been really working hard to focus on lately is trying to take things one day at a time as much as I can. And and just thinking to myself, I don't know how long forms of COVID uh, isolation, I don't know how long this is going to last. There, but there are of course so many things I don't know about the direction any of our lives will go over the next day, week, month, multiple years. So I'm, I'm trying to accept the fact that this is my life right now and, um, and look for uh, the good in that and the challenges in that instead of uh, focusing on my desire for things to be different. Mm-hmm. Um, some days I can do that more successfully than others. <laughs> Um, in terms of what's on my nightstand, I uh, recently started reading a book that is super fascinating. Um, it's by a theologian who teaches at Baylor. Her name's Natalie Carnes. And the book is called Motherhood, A Confession. And she wrote it as kind of a companion to Augustine's Confessions. Mm-hmm. In fact, it's... it's uh, has the same number of chapters and each chapter focuses on a particular idea that Augustine emphasizes in that same moment in his own story. Um, The the, uh, dust jacket says, what if Augustine's confessions had been written not by a man, but by a mother? How might her tales of desire, temptation and transformation differ from his? I mean, this is one of those books that a, a person who's never even heard of Augustine could read this book and find it uh, thought-provoking and uh, theologically interesting. Um, you don't have to be a woman, don't have to be a mother to read this book, but as a woman and a mother and a person who has read and taught Augustine's Confessions multiple times, um, I'm it's really thought provoking and super interesting. So that's what I'm reading right now. Carrie, how about you? Um, anything that you're um, streaming right now to get through COVID-19 or anything yeah. good on your nightstand? Uh, yeah. So, well, I mean, right now on my nightstand is Frankenstein. So, <laughs> uh, since that is what we were reading. So I've, I've set aside James Joyce temporarily okay. for, the next, for the next week or so to, to read through Frankenstein. <laughs> um, and then I have been, so listeners may remember that last fall I had re, I decided to reread Good Omens. Um, and so one of the things that I actually just finished streaming, which seems oddly appropriate right now, is Good Omens. Because there's nothing like a little, you know, 
satire about the apocalypse. <laughs> yeah. Oh, strange oh. global pandemic. Yeah, yeah. Nice. It's very, very good. Just I yeah. would say the Amazon Prime. I mean, it's David Tennant and Michael Sheen. John Hamm is one of the one of the main angels. I mean, it's just it's fantastic. So. Yeah, we we watched that a few months ago. Loved it. Mm-hmm. Yep. Dan, what about you, Anne Marie? Uh, and my my family is a big fan of a BBC show that was on a couple of years ago called Art Detectives. I think I talked about it, um, but mm -hmm. it was kind of interesting because we were watching an episode last night that was dealing with the restoration of a piece of art by Joseph Wright of Darby. He is oh, the artist that the, uh, did the, the experiment on the air pump. Yes. yes. So there was a great discussion about him and his fellow um, science lovers that was I thought was entirely appropriate as the backdrop for reading Frankenstein. Oh, so that was awesome. totally fun. Yeah. And then I had bought a book for Lydia that uh, was not at all appropriate. Uh, <laughs> but so there's a, a, a guy named James Harriet. I think Marion probably has heard of him. He wrote a book called All Creatures Great and Small. And what yep. Lydia wanted was the kids storybook of that um, book, but um, the, the regular book, All Creatures Great and Small, talks about him being a um, veterinarian surgeon starting in the 1930s in Britain. And my goodness, I was not expecting to like it at all, but it, it's fantastic. So <laughs> odd choice for my nightstand, but there it is. Good stuff. Yeah. Well, um, thanks for listening. You've been listening to Location Bethel. Okay,